presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. One of the ways that some of my teachers have talked about our practice is, uh, and it's really kind of goes right to the heart, how we relate to experience. We either have what we could call an object orientation, which means that as I'm meditating or as I'm living my life, what gets my attention are the different objects of my experience. A sight, a thought, a memory, an emotion, a sound. And then if we're living in that object-oriented way, which is sort of the way we're all living, right? This should sound familiar. then, you know, whatever, in any given moment, whatever object is predominant, so the attention is knowing that experience, a thought, emotion, sensation, whatever it might be, then, of course, a lot will arise around that perception of that experience, like, I like it, or I don't like it, or I don't care about it, or whatever. Oh, this is like that other time. And the mind gets then entangled with the different objects of our experience. Because, in a way, we're conditioned or built to have an opinion about every experience over and over again. And even though in any one moment when the mind is, in a sense, fixating on... Like right now, you might be fixating on what I'm saying, or the sound of my voice, which you may like or not like, or, you know, whatever... (laughs) It is that is in the forefront of your attention right now. And there's always something in the forefront of attention. Something, and then everything else is is just there in the background or in the periphery. And so we can get to notice that object orientation itself. That's kind of part of our Dharma training is to recognize the mind's relationship to the objects of experience. And you might, like it's been characterized by maybe even all the way back to the Buddha, as a kind of hunger or thirst, as if whatever it is the mind is attending to, whatever experience or object the mind is attending to, awareness is knowing, as if there's the me, that wants to get something from that pleasant or unpleasant or neutral experience. Kind of dependence, or almost as if we're trying to extract something from an experience. I mean, some moments are more obvious, like you catch yourself watching a beautiful sunset. And it's interesting to be a little bit more reflective, so there's the colors that the eyes are seeing, and then there's the emotional response, like, this is beautiful. And then maybe more subtle and more in the background is, uh, I want something from this beautiful experience of watching the sunset from the colors. It's as if somebody's feeding on that nice experience. Or even if it's not nice, like a painful drama that we might be in, caught in, 
you might notice that in a weird way, in a sort of strange way, the mind, the ego, is getting some sustenance from the identification with the drama. It's like, I, it's almost as if we were to say to ourselves, I know I'm real because this drama that I'm chewing on is so juicy and so intense. And as if something is getting fed and nourished in that. And we want to start, I mean, this is like a whole study of how is the mind relating to sense experience, which also includes all of our mental activity or thoughts about sense experience. How's the mind relating? Is there a stickiness, a dependency, an attachment, identification, right? These are different words we use. So that as if the mind is trying to get something from the way it's knowing or relating to that experience? Or is the way of relating to like the talk tonight or relating to how your body feels right now, is it empty of that stickiness? Or you could even say clean or simple. So there's no trace. It's not like uh, the mind is intimate, but it's neither for nor against. It doesn't mean the, the experience in the moment that's being known is, isn't pleasant or unpleasant or whatever it is. But the mind isn't trying to get something from it. So just going back to that example of a sunset, this is a powerful experience for me. I mean, a long time ago, um, maybe almost 25 years ago now, but I was in the middle of a longer retreat and I was watching in New England and I was watching a beautiful sunset looking west over this uh, beautiful fall New England setting with trees and a pond and, you know, sort of a classic sunset moment. And, uh, and, I, and I noticed how the experience could flip, in a sense, back and forth to being with the experience of seeing the sunset with attachment, trying to feed on it, and then back to no attachment, no trying to feed on it, and then back to attachment, not attachment, back and forth, back and forth. It's almost like, even though the outward conditions weren't changing, it was almost as if there were two realities. One reality was the beautiful sunset and the person who had the view, the established view that this is special for me and this is somehow meaningful for me. There's something I'm getting from observing this beautiful sunset or there's something I'm trying to get. And the wisdom that observed that reality realized the stressfulness of that entanglement. Oh, it's a little heavy. Interesting. Because it's really nice, but it's heavy in the subtle way because the mind is trying to make the beautiful sunset mine or trying to get something from it, feed on it. And then when the mind would flip to the sort of wiser way of relating, which is 
seeing is being known, including the recognition that given the way the heart is conditioned, this, this has a really good feeling. You know, it's really beautiful, feels nice to be here. So it's not like in that other Dharma wise reality, you know, without the attachment, it's not like the mind is unaware that it's a beautiful sunset or that the light reflecting off of the water is an interesting on that sort of simple level. But it's really about what's not there. And this, this isn't far, it's never far away, like this moment right now. Like the mind in any moment could be a mind that's dependent, in a sense, feeding on whatever meaning that we might be manufacturing or constructing about the specialness of the experience or this is a bad talk or whatever it might be. And then there could be something more simple. You'll notice sometimes at Dharma talks that um, people will sit in their samadhi pose, you know, and if you look at them, you know, kind of wonder, well, they must be oblivious to what Shelley or Mark is saying, you know, because they, they seem so secluded from what's going on around them. But they might be profoundly intimate with the talk, with their interpretation of the talk, with any emotions that are arising because of what they're hearing, or judging the teacher and noticing that, or whatever. But there might be like that bodily serenity and stillness just in the sitting posture while they're listening. There might be that space of equanimity of not being moved by all that's moving. So this is sort of a funny thing. It's hard to put in language. I was mentioning, and I don't know if I mentioned this last Wednesday, but I was mentioning somewhere recently this uh, really useful, maybe it was on Monday night for the last Buddhist studies class, but there's this uh, very well-known teaching from Ajahn Chah, a very famous Thai monk, who died in the 90s, 1990s, and was quite influential in the early Buddhism coming here to the West over the last number of decades. And he had this little teaching thing he used toward the end of his life where he would say something somewhat puzzling. He would ask his students, have you ever seen still flowing water? Did I mention this last week? Anybody remember? Have you ever seen still flowing water? And people would go, well, I know what still water is, and I know what flowing water is, but I'm not so sure what you mean by still flowing water. And then he sort of, I like the fact that people were thrown for a loop, because then he would explain the meaning of the metaphor, which is our mind, especially a mind that has practiced well, it will feel, it will seem as if it's still flowing water. So we're not afraid of what's moving. What's moving? You know, we say conditioned experience is moving. Sight is moving, sound is moving, sensation is moving, smell and taste. Even now when we're not eating, you know, they're still smelling and tasting. It's just rather subtle and insignificant. And thoughts are moving, mental activity. 
That is the, you know, chaos, the wildness, the activity of what it means to be alive, this activity, in short, of the body and the mind. Right? The five physical senses were vulnerable, were exposed to the constant impingement of sight and sound and touch and smell and taste. And the sixth being mental activity, constantly impinged. And, and when we get sensitive, it, it can feel really overwhelming. Like, even when we go in our bedroom and put the pillow over our head and close the shades, and still, there's a lot of mental activity that we're exposed to. You know, even if the room is quiet and there isn't, you know, dark, no smells in the room and we're not eating anything, Still, there's a lot of noise from mental activity, a lot of activity just with mental activity. And uh, our general tactic when we're less wise is to try to control the vulnerability, the exposure through these six sense gates. That's a basic, you could say, animal strategy is to try to have pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches, and pleasant thoughts, and avoid the unpleasant smells, tastes, touches, sounds, sights, and thoughts, right? Isn't that, wouldn't that be a way just to characterize our lives? Like if we were going to introduce ourselves to each other, you know, one question would be, okay, you've got five minutes, tell me how you pursued Pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and thoughts, and how you've pursued avoiding the unpleasant contact through those six sense gates. Because we could do a cover so much of our life. Like when I was in eighth grade, I did this, and really what that was about was avoiding the social humiliation, which was a painful mental experience, right? So I avoided those people and hung out with these other people. Or when I was 23, there was this very attractive visual experience, you know? And then I did this, and I had a very painful experience when that person rejected me, or something like that, right? So it's like all about the exposure to these six, through these six sense gates, and what that evokes in us. And it's all about this sense of me dependent on sense experience, trying to get something from sense experience. Like, when we want to be safe, we seek safety through our sense experience. You know, a place that, you know, we sense is safe through these six ways, the thoughts about it, Say it's safe, the sight, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touches. <clears throat> we're getting some, we're not sure what, but probably chipmunks in our basement in a way that we can't, they're between the ceiling and the <clears throat> floor, the main floor. And that every so often, over the last few years, it smells like one dies in our basement. And it's like we can't figure out how they're getting in or where they are. And uh, obviously it's, feels, you know, really, like, vulnerable. Like, wait a minute. This place, my house, my home, 
This is the place I feel safe. This is the place I imagine I have some control. You know, and then you get these, we had a deck put in uh, off the back of our house, and I'm imagining there's some cracks in the foundation, and the deck sits right on the ground, so we can't even get under there to explore that part of the foundation. So it's, and you know, to take the whole deck apart doesn't sound fun. <laughs> so it's just interesting how, you know, like when the house is nice, we feed on ah, And when there's some exposure or something we don't like in the house, it feels so personal, the threat, you know, it not being the way we want it to be. Because there's a very, for me, often a very clear sense of the me that's dependent on this particular sense experience called my house. How I see it, how I experience it through my thoughts, my sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches. That's the only way I know my house, through those six sense gates, right? That's how I know my partner, that's how I know my body, that's how I know my world, through these six sense gates. And we have a particular relationship with our sense contact or sense experience. And it's, you know, if we want to sum it up in, in one word, we'd say attachment. And there's this interesting teaching, like I mentioned, still flowing water. A more interesting and maybe descriptive way that this is talked about by another well-known Thai Buddhist monk, um, Ajahn Suwat. Ajahn just means like a monastic teacher. So his monastic name is Suwat. Same kind of a contemporary of Ajahn Chah, the other person who said, who gave the little teaching on still flowing water. But this other teacher, Arjun Suwat, he said uh, something like, you know, mountains may be heavy in and of themselves, but they're only heavy for us if we try to lift them. If you don't try to lift a mountain, it's not a problem. But if you try to lift it, then it's a personal problem for you. So, now, that's a little teaching story, right? And the mountain is our sense experience. Sense experience doesn't have to be a problem. But every sight, every thought, every sound, every touch is potentially a problem if we try to own it or if the heart, mind feels dependent on it, has an opinion that it's attached to a liking or a disliking that it's identified with. So, now instead of, because what we tend to think is, well, of course I'm attached to sense experience. Of course I'm attached to my likes and dislikes, to what I find pleasant and what I find unpleasant. Of course. But are we willing to explore, just in simple ways, relating to sense experience in a different way? That's that, shift in reality I was talking about when I was looking at the sunset. I did the same, I think it was the same retreat. I would do it every morning at breakfast, or most mornings, you know, same thing for the most part, you know, you get oatmeal and a few fixings to put in your oatmeal and but they had bananas out and a few other things. So it was basically the same breakfast every day. It was a three-month retreat, you know. And, um, you know, you you. Just because of the continuity of present moment awareness, 
you begin to see that in one moment it could be like drudgery, like, oh, oatmeal again. When is the retreat going to be over? Same routine, same old, same old. And then, you know, in other moments, I actually realized I really like it, you know, and I put butter in the oatmeal, and I just do it the way I like it. I put a lot of sunflower seeds in it and a little tahini, you know, all kinds of nice stuff. So I'm making everybody hungry. And, uh, and I just realized, like, just that simple experience of getting the oatmeal, preparing it, sitting down. I could be in a hell realm, because uh, back then, you know, the dining hall was really crowded, so there were people right across from you on the table, people on both sides of you, you know, and it's like you'd hear people chewing. It was just like many things that if you wanted to, you could turn into a hell realm. You know, like oatmeal again, sitting next to you again, with, you know, you chew with your mouth open, and you take too much, and you're the cool Buddhist who doesn't take much, and all of you are pushing my buttons, and, and, uh, and then it's just so interesting to see how, oh, look at that. This is a reality, the mind, because it's dependent on experience, it's identified not just with the experience, but all the meaning the mind is making up entangled with the actual experience of seeing the oatmeal, smelling the oatmeal, tasting the oatmeal, swallowing the oatmeal, you know, all the elemental parts, and then all the meaning that arises with the entanglement, with taking the experience personally. Or you could have a, a deva realm where you love the oatmeal, and you love the, oh, you, I'm so happy to be sitting, you know, and it's a glow. And I got one of those places in the dining hall where I can look out a window and it's like, everything's glorious. And then the mind gets entangled with that. I'm always gonna, breakfast will always be like this. You know, I'm probably getting pretty close to full awakening because I'm so happy. But the mind, what's really going on is the mind is entangled with the happiness, it's identified with it, and it doesn't want the happiness to go away. It's, and unconsciously, not you know, without being aware, already the heart, and even the body, is trying to make it last. Make the nice breakfast last longer. Make the nuttiness of the oatmeal last longer. Before I get full and don't want any more, you know or whatever it is. We're trying to extract, personally extract, so we own something good from what is actually just a pleasant experience. And even the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of the breakfast, it's not inherent in the experience of sitting there having the oatmeal, right? It's just the construction around it have you seen this just in your own life that, you know, you could be turning some moment at work into hell or you could be turning it into a moment where there's a lot of gratitude and appreciation and back to hell and, or you're being in relationship with a partner or a good friend. It could be hellish in moments and then wonderful in other moments. Feeling vigorous in the body in some moments 
feeling tormented by all the problems the body's having in the next moment. Loving being alive in one moment, really ready to be done with life in another moment, right? So what that eventually, when we study how the mind relates to sense experience and all the different varieties of meaning our mind constructs around sense experience, liking and disliking, heaven realms and hell realms, over and over again, every moment. And then, in a way, there's all these neutral realms where we tend to ignore because it's not a special moment, it's neither especially pleasant or especially painful, so we just kind of tune out. And, and amazingly, that's much of our lives. So equanimity is a, the deeper aspect of equanimity is this non-dependence on sense experience. So each sense experience is like a mountain that wisdom has realized, I don't have to own, I don't have to be dependent on this sense experience. But it, that realization arises with intimacy. So we're really there in the moment. When and I drove up for the day last week to stand in Lake Superior, uh, we know a really nice public beach in a small town called Cornucopia. Some of you might know it in northern Wisconsin on the south shore of Lake Superior. And this is a sweet little public beach uh, that the town owns. So there's nice, you know, just people there, you're not alone. And just standing in the lake for a long time, you know, just it's a real sandy beach. And uh, hearing the sounds of the families and the dogs, you know, that people bring, having a field day, playing in the water. And it's just that we really like it, you know, even though it's a long drive there and back. But it's just interesting to be in an experience we really like without the making it something that depends or that seems to require grasping. Like, oh, we got to do this more often. Or even turn it into hell realm. You know, I need a cabin here now. You know, I want this. I want this. This is, this should be mine. Why don't I live here? And we, we can so quickly ruin what is simply a nice experience. You know, the temperature of the water, when you don't go all the way in, is nice. And the sunshine is nice. And the sound of the people, when they're not too close or obnoxious, is nice. You know, it's like, when it's all just right, it's really nice. But it's so easy to ruin it by the attachment. And just to... Notice and just experiment with pleasant experience without any dependency, without trying to lift the mountain to make it yours in any way. And it's just so neat, like it might be fun when you crawl into bed tonight, but then explore like that nice feeling of being safe in your bed without any sense of personal ownership or dependency. Like anything can happen, there could be a loud noise, or some weird thing could happen in the house, the 
smoke alarm could go off because the battery's dead. You know how that happens sometimes, right? But right now it's really nice. And I'm going to be really intimate with the niceness, but without any dependency, without any conscious or unconscious sense that it should always be this way. Knowing that it, however nice it is, the niceness is fragile. So we're always vulnerable to change. But we protect ourselves not by nailing everything down so that the nice moment never changes, but by making peace with the ephemeralness of our nice experiences and also with the ephemeralness of our not-so-nice experiences. Just They just keep changing. Nothing's set, everything's in motion. And that's really the, the practice of equanimity is just in more and more places in our lives to explore being intimate with what's coming and going through the six sense gates, but without like exploring the absence of any dependency. So you're there, you're at work, you're all in, you're really present, feeling what you feel. But you know that the dynamic at work is, um, you know, it is coming, it is arising due to so many causes and conditions which you're not in charge of. You get to participate in how it is at work, right? You get to show up, get to speak up, keep quiet, do everything you do with a lot of integrity and a wholehearted presence. But you can't really make it the way you want and you can't really own it and depend on it. Well, you can try, but it will break your heart. And eventually you'll feel betrayed because you're not even, we're not even in control of our own body or our own personality, much less our job scene, our love life, the communities we're part of, the wider world, right? So we have, you could say, rights to be all in, to participate, to be part of the unfolding, but we don't have any rights to own it, to take it personally. Because when we do, we get hurt. And we want to really explore this, because obviously there's a lot of shadows to this. And I think I mentioned this last week, like the shadow of indifference. Well, if I can't own, if I can't really make my partner be the way I want them to be, to make me happy, then I'm just not going to care about my partner. And if I can't make my body always pleasant and healthy and vibrant in the way I want my body to be, then I'm going to give up on the body. And if I can't make my world and my community just and fair and harmonious and orderly and just the way I like it, then I'm going to give up on Minneapolis and the Seward neighborhood and the United States of America and the world and the solar system too. You know, because even the solar system we can't control. Some days are more sun flares than other days and, you know, who knows what that does to us and then recently we had the full moon and the cat's even more crazy than usual and, you know, all the... It's like 
everything is changing. Our neighbor just had their roof replaced and that drove the cat crazy, all the, uh, what are the, all those guns that shoot the nails, nail guns, <laughs> making a sound that, you know, he didn't feel was safe, right? So he had to hide and freak out and stuff like that. So it's not a concept, like we can't take the concept of non-attachment and being balanced, being even, nothing is going to affect me. We can't just take that idea and then imitate it, because that gets really stinky. Uh, one of my teachers once said after a long retreat, toward the end of a long retreat, they said, uh, she said, you know what's great about a long retreat? You get to drop some of your false equanimity. Because <laughs> it's true. It just starts to get to be such a burden to be a Buddhist who's equanimous, you know, walking around in the retreat center as if you don't have a care in the world. Because <laughs> isn't that how we're supposed to look, right? So I'm going to come and I need to look, have that serene vibe. Because that's what people, at Kamen, you know, I'm just trying to fit in here. Real, you know, the, the kind of practice we really respect are people who are completely comfortable in their skin. You know, they're not trying to be somebody. So if they're serene, they're not afraid of being serene. But if they're agitated, they're not trying to, like, agitate other people. But they're not trying to paint a picture, trying to look the way they think they're supposed to look. You know, you know how that is, that people who aren't uh, trying to fit some brand that they have for themselves or some brand they think other people have for them. And it's so refreshing because in a way they're giving everybody else permission to not have to carry that burden or lift that mountain. We can just let nature be nature. And that includes the nature of our personality and the ups and downs of our emotional lives and the ups and downs of our love lives, and our ups and downs of our health, and the ups and downs of our, you know, the harmony in our families, or the dis-ease in our family. I mean, they're just little ecosystems, or little weather systems, and sometimes it's stormy, and sometimes it's really beautiful, on all levels. And equanimity is that balance, that stillness, in the midst of the chaos. Real equanimity is actually defined by being equanimous with the wildness of, in Buddhism we often will call it causes and conditions. But we're just, that phrase, it just means the conditional unfolding of everything, right? But the thing about the conditional unfolding of everything is it's happening on its own. It, there's no control center or some person, deity or whatever, that's in charge of nature. I mean, maybe you found a control center or somebody who's in charge of it all. But, you know, the Buddha didn't and I haven't. And a lot of us, you know, we don't sense that. We, we kind of would like somebody to be in charge of it all. And sometimes we'll put ourselves in that position, like in a, uh, someone's got to stand up and take charge of things, right? It's 
kind of more of the, maybe the masculine thing to do, but, or male thing to do. But it's always turns out to be a cause for more suffering. To, to feel as if, and it doesn't mean we don't participate, as I said, but that sense of needing to dominate causes and conditions, needing to control them, well, that's a sure way to cause our own suffering and contribute to the suffering of others. So with equanimity, with this understanding that nature is nature, inside, outside, it's all nature, innumerable causes and conditions unfolding naturally. And Sylvia Borstein says, breathtakingly, the only way it can be, given it's all in motion, this, whether we're talking about my mood right now, or talking about what's going on in our family or in our city or in our world, that this can't be other than the way that it is. And if we try to own it, that's like lifting the mountain. It's going to be really heavy. It's going to be really painful. But if we harmonize with it, if we're willing to be intimate, and to, in a sense, be all in, in the, in the sense of participation, without the ownership, then, then see how that begins to change. And you can just start in small places, like cooking a meal, or walking from your car to the office. Like you're all in, you're present, you're participating with this, the exposure through the six sense gates, what you're thinking, what you're seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching as you're doing whatever particular activity, you're all in, you're giving permission to be all in, to participate, to speak up or get quiet or move quick or move slow. So you're not controlling your personality, your personal way of participating or doing whatever you're doing. That gets to be nature, not you dominating or controlling or, right? or even if there is an overlord telling you what to do, that gets to be nature too. Because you can be controlling by trying to get rid of the overlord instead of realizing, oh, look at that. There's the overlord telling me what to do. You know, the parent that we've created for ourselves that is back there wagging their finger at us. You did that, you said that, you forgot to do that. You know, or whatever your particular personality is like for you. And then the question is, do you start to experience a kind of freedom, a lightness in that harmonizing with nature? Because that's the flavor of awakening. It has the flavor of equanimity, a kind of beautiful balance. And it's really a balance about what's not there. What's not there is the weight, the heaviness, the squeeze we experience when we're trying to own something that can't be owned, isn't ours to own, isn't anybody's to own. Our life, my thoughts, my experience are not there for somebody to own them, like me. But isn't that how we think? Well, it's my thought, it's my experience, it's my joy, it's my sorrow. Of course, if 
right? That's so almost like an instinct to want to grasp, own our experience. But we can retrain our heart to be intimate without the grasping. And then we'll really understand that teaching from Ajahn Chah about still flowing water. You'll go through your life, your personality will be even more your personality, I mean, more vibrant. You'll be more vibrantly who you already are in terms of your particular traits and tendencies. But there will be something that is empty. That activity will be empty of that ownership, empty of the squeeze, empty of the weight. And you'll sense that as a kind of stillness, right, or balance, or something that is unmoved, even though you're totally all in, doing whatever the moment, what's appropriate in the moment, not holding back at all in terms of doing the moment. So it'd be nice uh, now in the last 15 minutes to hear from some of you online and in person, because I'm guessing, you know, in our group of 30, 40 people, we've had a lot of those moments where maybe to some degree we were able to sense that the heart, the mind is empty of that, you know, unnecessary sense of lifting something that doesn't need to be lifting, lifted, or owning something that can't be owned, grasping what can't be grasped. And the experience was kind of a lightness and nimbleness, like how we were participating felt like uh, not leaving any trace, no unhealthy reverberations from what we're saying or doing or how we're participating. And of course, any questions that you have about what I've said tonight or last week even, it's just generally about, you know, how we experience balance. And do we trust it, that radiant balance, that kind of... Uh, absence of entanglement. And people in the room, if you're willing, if you feel comfortable, you can sit on the bench and I'll hand you the mics of the people online. But if that doesn't feel comfortable, I'm happy to repeat your comments or questions, uh, if it's not too long, to the people online so they know they can be part of the conversation. And people online, I can amplify you so everyone in the room can hear you. And you can just go ahead and unmute yourself if you want um, to speak up. Otherwise, people in the room, you could just, yeah, please do mind clean up. And of course, say your first name if you're willing. You could also share your pronouns if you want. So I have a question about, I know you talked a lot tonight about um, pleasant experience or unpleasant experience, but trying to keep hold some of this in mind when it's a really painful experience or um, intense experience I've had the last few weeks just in very intense weeks in my life. I've been dealing with um, a high-conflict person in my life in a high-conflict way in family court, which is as awful as you imagine it would be. Um, and it's just, there's so many feelings of uncertainty and scariness and consequences for me and my children and just trying to... I actually had a point last week where all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is where all this matters. <laughs> Not that it doesn't matter in regular life, but like dealing with this is where, 
you know, equanimity and mindfulness really is like the rubber meets the road. And I was really struggling with it and really struggling to accept it. And um, I think a lot of the concepts you talked about tonight, just to really hold on to, not hold on to that, but to to accept them. Um, So just when it's even more painful, I guess, how how to make all this work and and what to keep in mind would be great. Yeah, thanks, Emily. And obviously... As we all sense, just hearing uh, Emily's scenario, you know, that's really, really hard. And it's like the first step is to realize that the kind of fear and pain that's arising in that situation. And, the, you know, when we are really exposed like that, then it, is, it isn't a matter of will. It's, uh, it's like an instinct the system freezes up, right? That's that's just a both a, a biological, neurological thing that the system does. It just freezes up. We panic, we freeze, we bolt, we you know, and that's when the system is overwhelmed with fear or anxiety that tightening up. So the initial movement of equanimity is just to realize that the heart and body has frozen up. It's paralyzed with fear of the consequences and the desire that this work out, you know, for the benefit, uh, as we understand it, for the kids, for myself, for everyone. So, maybe not in the moment, but maybe later when you remember how painful and how reactive the mind was, you could have the understanding that, well, of course, sometimes it's like that. Sometimes this is just a frightened animal, panicking, a cornered animal. Because that's true. In nature, sometimes we're the cornered animal. And we're going to act like cornered animals act. I mean, you know, different ways and different circumstances. And we want to normalize that. Because even that belongs And then also what belongs there, what you talked about, Emily, is the aspiration to be at ease. Because when we're at ease, then our interaction can be more nimble, more creative, more powerful when that's the appropriate uh, move, more receptive when maybe that's the more skillful move, right? So that arising of that aspiration to be able to be more balanced less in a frozen state, more relaxed and nimble. That's a beautiful aspiration. And that also belongs, you know, to see that aspiration. But we don't grasp that beautiful aspiration just like we don't identify with the panic. Oh yeah, sometimes there's panic. Oh yeah, sometimes there's a beautiful aspiration. And then something practically that we can do in those moments where we feel that panic or that overwhelm. When we're cornered, we, that the habit often is to keep staring at the thing that's scaring us. And it might be like the possibility that might happen if I don't, if I'm not lucky or if I don't, if I'm not able to be really skillful right now, this scenario could turn out and that's not okay. Right? And we tend to, keep going there, and then we trigger the panic, 
and the triggering of the panic makes us want to look at the thing that triggers the panic, and then we get caught in that cycle, right? So one thing we can train ourselves to do is turn the attention to something we can actually be intimate with without triggering panic. So that's the, like, being, having spent years being with the body or being with the breath, then I can be with my body, my breath in a balanced way some of the time, right? And more and more of the time. So when I remember to come back, then in that very limited experience, so there's all, all hell is breaking out around me, I'm in the court and that I can bring for a few moments my attention to my body or to the breath or just look out the window or whatever it is, but some aspect of the present moment that I can actually be intimate with without it triggering panic. And I, the heart rediscovers its capacity to be balanced, to be unafraid. And then we can widen the awareness to include the rest of what's going on in the moment. We re-remember the possibility of being peaceful with the conditions in this limited place. And then we relax and, and well, maybe I can be intimate and non-reactive with the bigger picture. And you might need to stay in touch with what you do trust, even as you're listening and responding, right? So that's why the Buddha highly reveres mindfulness of the body. Because when we train being intimate with the body with equanimity, then we can use it in all these difficult places in life where it's really hard to remain balanced because I know how to be balanced with what I'm feeling in my body and that will keep reminding me it is possible to be balanced, to be accepting, even with these other things. And it's sort of like a, a omnipresent monument to equanimity. Like if we've been cultivating equanimity with the experience of embodiment, or some people do with the experience of hearing. Not hearing specific sounds, but just the breath of that experience of hearing. Hearing's nice because it, it often comes with a more natural receptivity. Like right now when you are tuned to hearing, do you have strong opinions about it? I mean, it's pretty neutral in the room I'm in, or we're in here, and hopefully at your houses, for apartments too. And so, it's not that I focus on the hearing, I focus on the equanimity with the hearing. You know, like, the way the mind is relating to hearing, there's no agenda. And now I can remember I'm giving a talk or responding to a comment, and I can have that same balance, that same peaceful relationship with these other conditions in the present moment, not just the hearing. So that's a real, but it's not like you can just pull that out of the hat. You gotta train when the conditions are suitable, when you're not in family court, dealing with really important issues around the family. But when you're in a safe place, then you cultivate a profound intimacy with your training objects, body, breath, hearing, bodily postures, 
you know, simple things. And you learn how to, like, how to rediscover the possibility of being completely exposed, intimate, but without an agenda, without fear, and without greed. So just letting nature be nature. And, and we sense the freedom and the lightness and the nimbleness and the creativity in that, letting nature be nature. And so it's like, basically we don't need the Buddhist teachings then, because the teachings are embodied when we feel what the heart, the mind has learned over many years of practice, its way of relating to reality, like the reality of the body, and then we, all we're doing is learning how to broaden that out to everything, every conditioned experience. But when we, it's too much out there, we come back. Well, I know how to be equanimous. I know how to be intimate without attachment with the experience of my body. And of course, we practice when the bodily experience isn't profoundly painful. But it will really help when it is really painful. Like, oh, I've been practicing with the sensation. That's why we sit still, because we'll want to move. But we get to practice not with overwhelming pain. We just sit long enough so there's enough discomfort that we get to practice some of that dispassion with bodily experience. Peacefulness, no matter what's happening in the body. It's really powerful, like, to work. Same thing with... uh, feeling really restless or disturbing thoughts when we're sitting. Oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. So in that limited way, when we're sitting in that safe, relatively safe time and place, it's really preparing us for these intense, difficult places in our lives. Yeah, thanks Emily, it's really powerful sharing. And we need to leave it here, it's nine o'clock. So nice to be with everyone. Those of you in the room, I think Mark, one of our Friday night teachers, uh, left a bunch of kale on the bench. So if you love kale, take some. It's already been here a day. It needs to be eaten. And uh, there's some bags there, too. And Shelley will be leading a half-day retreat on Saturday. Everyone's welcome to join in in person or online. The following sa- Saturday, uh, Meg Brandelin and Sandra Shawcross are going to be leading a workshop on the Four Heavenly Messengers. Aging, old age, sickness, death, and renunciation. In Buddhism, they're kind of considered uh, grace or, uh, yeah, just like the divine intervention. Like, because it reminds us, it sobers us up, just these uh, windows into what's true. Like, there is aging, sickness, and death, and there is the capacity to let go. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.